work goes on the same as it has been. It's not like things were wonderful under a President Obama. So we know what we've got to do and we've been doing it. We just need to do it harder now. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Real News Network, The David Pakman Show, a TED Talk by Christopher Segoyan, The Humorless Queers, Counterspin, Full Frontal with Samantha B, and The Majority Report. One of the major concerns that many have about uh, President Trump is that given his authoritarian tendencies, he would be prone to use powers of the presidency to a far greater extent than, say, President Obama did. One of these powers that most people are not aware of is embodied in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Normally, this act is simply to provide funding for the U.S. military. However, in 2012, the NDAA included several controversial provisions, such as giving the president authority to indefinitely detain civilians. Shortly after the NDAA was passed, Chris Hedges, with several uh, several other people, challenged the Obama administration in court. Now we have the possibility of a new Gingrich, uh, who might be uh, uh, presiding over such matters and who will be advising a president. Trump. Uh, He's uttering the possibility of reestablishing a committee on un-American activities. Let's have a look at his response in a recent interview he did. So let me go a step further. Yeah. Because remember, San Bernardino, Fort Hood, and Orlando involve American citizens. We're going to ultimately declare war on Islamic supremacists, and we're going to say, if you pledge allegiance to ISIS, you are a traitor and you have lost your citizenship. And we're going to take much tougher positions. In the late 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt was faced with Nazi penetration in the United States. We we originally created the House on American Activities Committee to go after Nazis. We passed several laws in 1938 and 1939 to go after Nazis, uh, and we made it illegal to help the Nazis. We're going to presently have to go take the similar steps here. Now joining us to talk about all of this is Chris Hedges. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a columnist at Truth Dig and Alternet. He was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times and has reported extensively from the Middle East. Chris, good to have you back. Thank you. Chris, what do you make of uh, uh, that clip we just ran of Newt Gingrich and uh, what this holds for us in terms of the NDAA's implementation inside the country? Right. Well, Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which was signed into law by Obama at midnight 2011, essentially permits the government to carry out acts of extraordinary rendition on the streets of American cities against U.S. citizens who, quote-unquote, substantially support, whatever that means, al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or something called associated forces, another nebulous term, to strip them of due process and hold them indefinitely in military detention centers, including in our black sites overseas, such as Guantanamo or anywhere else. Um, That section has been renewed every year, Uh, I went to the Southern District Court of New York and sued Obama 
Uh, we won. Uh, the Obama administration appealed the decision. We went to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit denied my standing, which deny essentially means they denied my right to bring the case. We filed a cert, a petition to the Supreme Court to ask them to hear it, uh, and they also denied my right to bring the case, essentially enshrining this in law. During that two-year legal battle, uh, the lawyers, uh, Carl Mayer and Bruce Afron, approached the Democratic leadership around Pelosi and said, because they do have to renew it every year, all you have to do is insert into that uh, language that this does not apply to U.S. citizens and we will drop the lawsuit. Uh, of course, they didn't do that because it does apply to U.S. citizens. It was written uh, for uh, the containment of U.S. citizens in a moment of unrest. It overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibits the military from acting as a domestic police force. Why? Well, because climate change, economic dislocation, uh, the ruling elites uh, understand that the possibility of widespread unrest is possible, uh, and they want to use the military as a mechanism by which that unrest is crushed. Um, Obama, when he signed it into law, said that he wouldn't use it. Uh, that gave it no legal, uh, you know, it didn't mean anything legally. He could use it if he wanted to. He just, in a signing statement, said he wouldn't. Uh, we have seen all, most all of our constitutional rights, including our right to privacy, overturned by judicial fiat. Uh, unlimited corporate campaign contributions through Citizens United becomes the right to petition the government, a form of free speech. This is upending the traditional notions of constitutional rights. Habeas corpus due process, of course, as we saw with Section 1021 of the NDA, has been removed on and on and on again coupled with the most sophisticated security and surveillance apparatus in human history. All of this in, is in the hands of figures like Donald Trump, uh, Rudy Giuliani, John Bolton, and others. And um, given what I expect is going to be the seismic reaction to uh, the ineptitude uh, and the inability of the part of, on the part of a Trump presidency to respond to the most pressing issues uh, facing the majority of Americans, uh, they will use all of the tools at their disposal. Uh, and they were handed these tools by the Republican and the Democratic Party. Uh, and this is something that all of us, uh, Ralph Nader perhaps being at the forefront, who have been fighting against the legal erosion of our civil liberties, have been warning about and fearing for some time, and now it's here. All right, Chris. Uh, so the courts are one mechanism of uh, challenging a, a Trump. Uh, but uh, there are many people out there who believe that really uh, only way to challenge this is on the streets. And we saw much of that taking place uh, last night. And um, since uh, you are the author of uh, a very famous book called uh, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, um, what's, uh, what should activists and those who are um, resisting a Trump presidency do about these kinds of situations here? Well, yeah, the only mechanism we have left is civil disobedience, but let's not pretend democracy died uh, on November 8th. We haven't been living in a functioning democracy for some time. Uh, there are no institutions left that can authentically be considered democratic. They're all essentially controlled by corporate power, uh, the mass media, academia, the political establishment. Um, so, uh, yeah, civil disobedience, uh, just as we saw before, 
Uh, but the difference is that the state, I think, under a Trump administration, will respond even more violently uh, and even more savagely. Uh, and you, I think, got a glimpse of that in the new Gingrich clip. Um, anybody who, who dissents will be considered a traitor, maybe a terrorist. Uh, they will certainly be demonized in a subservient corporate media by a Trump administration. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think, yes, that is the response. Uh, unfortunately, that was the response. Uh, and, and it's a response we should have stepped outside the mainstream a long time ago. So we didn't end up now in this in the grip of uh, an administration that is, um, you know, going to run roughshod over all constitutional legal restraints. Let's talk about Judge Andrew Napolitano for a second. I'm not a big fan of former Judge Andrew Napolitano. He's a Fox News contributor type. He wrote a pretty good piece, though, and I want to talk about it. He wrote a piece on Reason.com about the debate over trying domestic terrorists in a different way than so-called regular criminals in the U.S. by effectively abandoning due process. Of course, due process generally defined as fair treatment through the normal judicial system, especially as a citizen's entitlement. And I'll put up the first of two quotes I want to discuss from Andrew Napolitano's Reason.com article. Quote, it should come as no surprise that no sooner had the suspect in the recent New Jersey and New York City bombings been arrested than public calls came to strip him of his rights, send him to Gitmo, and extract information from him. This is more Vladimir Putin than James Madison. And in his article on Reason.com, Andrew Napolitano goes on to say more about this, and I'll show you quote number two. I have often argued that it is in times of fear, whether generated by outside forces or by the government itself, when we need to be most vigilant about protecting our liberties. I make this argument because when people are afraid, It is human nature for them to accept curtailment of their liberties, whether it be speech or travel or privacy or due process, if they become convinced that the curtailment will keep them safe. But these liberties are natural rights integral to all rational people and not subject to the government's whim. Either we change these rules for everyone or we don't. And I would argue that changing them is dangerous. The entire point of due process is that we have basic ground rules that are not up for interpretation depending on what the crime is that someone is suspected of, because that subjectivity is very, very dangerous. This is actually all related to a sort of perversion or distortion of how this idea of we should treat terrorists differently even sprung up. The idea that terrorists could be held without due process comes from thinking, well, we're going to be overseas and we're going to capture people in what we would colloquially describe as combat situations. Domestic terrorists were never supposed to be handled in that way. We have a criminal justice system that is perfectly well equipped to 
uh, uh, deal with terrorists. Many of them have been charged, convicted and, and put away. What are we saying when we say, well, certain people or certain crimes here in the U.S. can be arbitrarily excluded from the constitutionally granted criminal justice system we have because what? It'll be a deterrent to future terrorists who really believes that. And this is not just a theoretical discussion, whether or not he can achieve it. Donald Trump has made it very clear to the extent that he even understands this issue. He will try to remove many constitutional protections. When Trump talks about trying U.S. terror suspects in military tribunals, when he uses coded language about toughening libel laws against media, when he talks about religion based bans on people coming to the U.S., He's really getting at the heart of the American Constitution. Let's not forget the Constitution. Hold to the reason why we all stand free. Our forefathers fought for the right so that men and women may be free. Such a rapid change has gripped this land. Let's not forget where our rights come from. The freedom we receive, we could never repay. The Constitution is the reason why. In the spring of 2016, a legal battle between Apple and the Federal Bureau of Investigation captured the world's attention. Apple has built security features into its mobile products, which protect data on its devices from everyone but the owner. That means that criminals, hackers, and yes, even governments are all locked out. For Apple's customers, this is a great thing. But governments are not so happy. You see, Apple has made a conscious decision to get out of the surveillance business. Apple has tried to make surveillance as difficult as possible for governments and any other actors. So there are really two smartphone operating systems in the global smartphone market, iOS and Android. iOS is made by Apple. Android is made by Google. So Apple has spent a lot of time and money to make sure that its products are as secure as possible. Apple encrypts all data stored on iPhones by default, and text messages sent from one Apple customer to another Apple customer are encrypted by default without the user having to take any actions. What this means is that if the police sees an iPhone and it has a password, they'll have a difficult uh, time getting any data off of it if they can do it at all. In contrast, the security of Android just really isn't as good. Android phones, or at least most of the Android phones that have been sold to consumers, do not encrypt data stored on the device by default. And the built-in text messaging app uh, in Android does not use encryption. So if the police sees an Android phone, chances are they'll be able to get all the data that they want off of that device. Two smartphones from, from two of the biggest companies in the world one that protects data by default, and one that doesn't. Apple is a seller of luxury goods. It dominates the high end of the market. Uh, and we would expect a, a manufacturer of luxury goods to have products that uh, include more features. But not everyone can afford an iPhone. That's where Android really, really dominates, at the middle and low end of the market. Smartphones for the billion and a half people who cannot or will not spend $600 on a phone. But the dominance of Android has led to 
what I call the digital security divide. That is, there is now increasingly a gap between the privacy and security of the rich, who can afford devices that secure their data by default, and of the poor, whose devices do very little to protect them by default. So, think of the average Apple customer. Uh, you know, a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a politician. These individuals now increasingly have smartphones in their pockets that encrypt their calls, their text messages, all the data on the device, without them doing really anything to secure their information. In contrast, the poor and the most vulnerable in our societies are using devices that leave them completely vulnerable to surveillance. In the United States, where I live, African Americans are more likely to be seen as suspicious, or more likely to be profiled, and are more likely to be targeted by the state with surveillance. But African Americans are also disproportionately likely to use Android devices that do nothing at all to protect them from that surveillance. This is a problem. We must remember that surveillance is a tool. It's a tool used by those in power against those who have no power. And, you know, while I think it's absolutely great that companies like Apple are making it easy for people to encrypt, if the only people who can uh, protect themselves from the gaze of the government are the rich and powerful, that's a problem. And it's not just a privacy or cybersecurity problem. It's a civil rights problem. So the lack of default security in Android is not just a problem for the poor and vulnerable users who are depending on these devices. This is actually a problem for our democracy. I'll explain what I mean. Modern social movements rely on technology, from Black Lives Matter to the Arab Spring to Occupy Wall Street. The organizers of these movements and the members of these movements increasingly communicate and coordinate with smartphones. And so naturally, governments that feel threatened by these movements will also target the organizers and their smartphones. Now, it's quite possible that a future Martin Luther King or a Mandela or a Gandhi will have an iPhone and be protected from government surveillance. But chances are they'll probably have a cheap $20 Android phone in their pocket. And so if we do nothing to address the digital security divide, if we do nothing to ensure that everyone in our society gets the same benefits of encryption and is equally able to protect themselves from surveillance by the state, not only will the poor and vulnerable be exposed to surveillance, but future civil rights movements may be crushed before they ever reach their full potential. Thank you. So, Chris, thank you so much. I, um, I have a question for you. We saw recently in the press that um, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook covers over his camera and does something with his headphone mic jack. So I wanted to ask you a personal question, which is, do you do that? And then on behalf of everyone here, and particularly myself, should we be doing that? Should we be covering these things? 
So putting a, a sticker, or, or actually like band-aids, because you can remove them and put them back on whenever you want to make a call, or a Skype call, um, putting a sticker over your webcam is probably the best thing that you can do for your privacy in terms of bang for buck. There, there really is uh, malware, malicious software out there that can take over your webcam even without the light turning on. This is used by criminals. This is used by stalkers. You can sort of buy 19.99 spy on your ex-girlfriend software online. It's really terrifying. And then, of course, it's used by governments. And um, there's obviously a sort of sexual violence component to this, which is that this kind of surveillance can be used most effectively against, uh, against women uh, and, and other uh, people who, uh, who can be shamed in our society. Uh, even if you think you have nothing to hide, at the very least, if you have uh, children, teenagers in your, in your lives, uh, make sure that you put a sticker on, on their camera and protect them. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to customers, giving you an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, just the right sink and just the right bounce, and is all delivered right to your door in a mysteriously small box. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. In fact, Time Magazine named it one of the best innovations of 2015, and in addition to the mattress, the same team developed an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets that Casper offers as well. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. As a special offer, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. We are in this situation, so looking forward, you know, a way to exploit the situation that we're in politically is to really push liberals very hard um, on the question of their acquiescence. They're buying into Bush's national security state for the past eight years, right? Most liberals have completely slept on expansions of, of executive power under Obama. They've slept on the police state largely, um, a little bit less lately because of Black Lives Matter, but still basically sleeping. Uh, they've slept on the surveillance state in a major way. They have made excuses for Obama's um, refusal to prosecute torturers. They've made excuses for Obama's drone programs and his targeting of U.S. citizens for extrajudicial murder abroad. 
Um, so now we have an opportunity to actually reach out to those people who are, you know, liberals and try to bring them in in a real way to the idea that the Bush Obama new normal is fundamentally dangerous and that it doesn't matter who's in power. The FBI, the CIA, the NSA, um, the U.S. military cannot have the kind of powers that both Bush and Obama uh, bestowed upon them or that at least Obama didn't you know, reverse. And in some way, in some ways, in, in, you know, for example, the drone case, he expanded those executive powers. So I'm guessing that Obama's feeling a lot of remorse and regret about that right now. Um, and I'm just very hopeful that we will be able to move the ball forward, especially at the state and local level on some key surveillance and policing issues. Obviously, immigration is um, at the top of that list right now, particularly given that Trump's threats to deport 3 million people are front page news. Um, we need to try to make sure that every single police department in the country refuses to collaborate with federal immigration authorities as the Los Angeles po- police department's chief, you know, fuck that guy. But in this case, he's doing the right thing, which is saying we're not going to, you know, collaborate with Trump's fascist de- deportation force. You know, obviously, we have to cabin and observe that President Obama, the great liberal hope, uh, deported, you know, more people than any prior president in U.S. history. So the deportation machine, again, that Obama has already set in into motion, um, is now a real threat in a different way, I think, or at least, well, it very well may be a different threat. We don't know yet. Um, it could be that Trump doesn't follow through on any of his campaign promises, obviously. But it may very well be that we're facing a new kind of deportation threat. I think that uh, it's an opportunity for leftists to drag liberals to the left and say, see, we've been telling you this whole time. And of course, you know, you shouldn't lead with that. But the idea is you oppose this. We oppose this too. help us at the state and local level to fight the collaboration of state and local law enforcement with federal intelligence agencies and DHS. Um, and there are a number of different ways to do that. Not least of them is that my employer, the ACLU, uh, has put together a really fantastic model ordinance for cities and towns to adopt. And this ordinance is pretty basic. It just requires that police departments tell the, the local governing body, the city council or town council, um, that it intends to buy a, that it wants to buy a certain kind of surveillance technology and then forces them to go through a public process, hearings, um, a public vote. Um, so that there's democratic process about the acquisition of the tool, even if the, the money comes from the federal government to buy it. So there's no, you know, sidestepping the local, uh, control there. And, um, it also requires that the police department writes a policy that is subject to debate also to govern the technology if it's approved by the council and that the police department regularly reports on how the technology is used. So this, the legislation, the ordinance is written in a way that's very broad. So it encompasses current surveillance technologies as well as future ones. Um, and these are the kinds of things as well as, again, establishing sanctuary cities, um, getting agreements from police departments to refuse to in- engage with federal immigration authorities that we really need to make now to uh, lessen the impact of what I think is probably going to be a bruising four years, particularly for the people who are suffering most currently and have been suffering the most in the United States since the nation was formed um, from police and, you know, uh, repressive state power apparatus.
Watching social media, interest and energy around issues seems to swell and dissipate. But moving toward a functioning, inclusive democracy requires sustained work, building institutions, organizing, so that in times of acute crisis, we have structures or at least models of ways to respond. From promises of mass surveillance, stepped-up stop-and-frisk, to religion-based bans on entry to the country, a Trump White House looks set to be a nightmare for civil rights and liberties. Here to talk about how folks are planning to get through it is Sue Udry. She's executive director of the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, joined now with the Defending Dissent Foundation. She joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Sue Udry. Hi, Janine. It's great to be here. Well, one hardly knows where to start. It's difficult to think of a person from whom the Bill of Rights more requires defense. Uh, And this is coming off decades that have not been kind to it. You don't want to immobilize people, but you also want to say that the danger is real. But organizers have institutional memories, right? And have seen maybe not exactly this, but things enough like this that we can see some way forward in terms of what we do. Exactly. I think for a lot of us, the main problem is that President Bush, followed by President Obama, really have the Democrats and Republicans have worked kind of together to assemble some pretty powerful tools of repression that can be used and abused to crush dissent and attack people of color and immigrants and Muslims. That's what concerns us. When the keys to the empire are turned over to a President Trump, he's going to be able to use and build on some already pretty expansive executive branch authorities. And we can't count on Congress to to be any check on his powers at all, I'm afraid. So the way that we're looking at this is really kind of the way that we've always organized, which is to focus at the local level and work to build, well, we're calling it building walls of resistance around communities so that people can protect the rights of everyone in their community, particularly their most vulnerable neighbors, Muslims and immigrants, LGBTQ folks, and people of color. And I think that's where our energy is going to go. I wanted to draw you out further on that because I think that people are looking and have been looking to other levels of government, to community, local, even statewide, as a site for resistance. But those structures need support, and in some cases they need creating. So I wonder if you could tell us a little more about the campaign that the committee has to use local laws and resolutions to protect civil liberties? It's not necessarily an easy task we have ahead of us because there are a number of different programs that we need to be worried about where local action can be taken to to kind of protect people. And so what we've drawn up is two different model ordinances uh, that communities can use to ask their city councils or their county councils to enact in order to kind of the theory behind the model legislation is to break the ties between local police and federal law enforcement and intelligence and immigration enforcement agencies. So it really relies on kind of an idea of non-cooperation so that local police are not supporting federal programs to oppress and repress and discriminate. 
and are protecting their right to, to opt out of that. Exactly. So that's one angle of it. And then the other angle that's always been necessary is to restrict local police from profiling people in a discriminatory manner, you know, pulling people over because they're African-American or because they're Muslim or something like that. So enacting really strict, non-discriminatory policing laws is also key to that. So those are kind of the the ways that the legislation can work Mm -hmm. and the ways that communities need to organize to get them passed is to build strong coalitions, which they should be doing anyway in their communities. Right now, I feel like that's happening a lot. People are reaching out at the community level to talk to their neighbors and different organizations that they might be working with and trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to work together to confront this? So I think that makes the, the progressive movement stronger, and that's what we're going to need. Absolutely. You sort of touched on this. I think it's important that we identify policies or proposals as bad or as harmful because we think they're bad or harmful and not because they come from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the people who are losing the most here are in the most real danger, besides to their feelings. They seem to be the ones saying most strongly that the status quo ante is not the goal that we really want to cre- not just go back to where we were, but to try to work to to create something better. Yeah, I think that's very true. And then from what I heard from the statement that came out of Black Lives Matter movement today was, you know, our work goes on the same as it has been. <laughs> right. It's not like things were wonderful under a President Obama. And so, so we know what we've got to do and we've been doing it. We just need to do it harder now. Exactly. I wonder on, on a different tack, I wonder what you make of something like this op-ed that ran in the Washington Post where the writer Patula Dvorak says that people who are out in the street protesting Trump are protesting democracy. And that those street protests are equivalent to something like spray painting a swastika on a, on a synagogue. How do you react to a, a media figure saying something like that? Yeah, that's incredible to me. I didn't read her op-ed, but it's interesting. So she's got a platform from which to speak her ideas. Millions of people in the United States do not have a platform that she has. And our only way to communicate our concern about a Trump presidency is to be out in the streets. And so I think that's appalling. I think it's, you know, she's a journalist. She can say whatever she wants. I'm more worried about when that point of view comes from people who are potentially going to be part of the Trump administration. The sheriff of Milwaukee, whose name I'm forgetting right now, but he said some very incendiary things about protesters and how one should respond to protests, which he called riots. So that's really my concern. Journalists are going to, you know, haters are going to hate. It's when they're in positions of power and authority over us that I really get concerned. Well, and just to be clear, we have a right to peaceful protest, do we not? I mean, I think a lot of people who never thought of doing it want to do it. And voices that tell them that it's destructive, that it goes against the founding principles of democracy, I think that can be a real discouragement to people. Oh, it's absolutely, it's absolutely unacceptable. I absolutely, but it's a constant refrain. Whenever there are large protests, there are always voices in the media and voices even among elected officials and authorities that put down the protesters and call them all sorts of unjustified things. And, and that's absolutely not acceptable. We, we have a right to be out there and in fact, a duty to be out there. That's what, a democracy is. It doesn't start and end in the voting booth. 
people need to remain active and engaged in civil society, and dissent is, um, we say, dissent is essential to democracy. Well, let me just ask you finally, uh, before the election, many in the media seemed to talk about Trump as if he were a joke, you know, and they would say critical things about him. But we know the tendency to kind of normalize a word we're hearing a lot lately, and frankly, also to curry favor. So I have some doubts about where media are going to put their focus going forward, corporate media, because I see a lot of elements out there that are growing up in resistance that could be showcased, you know, that that media could be covering those stories of what organizers are doing. I'm concerned that that won't happen. But I just from your perspective, what could a press corps do that would be kind of wind at, at your back for the work that you're doing? What kinds of stories, what kinds of reporting do you think would be helpful at this point in time? I think covering the concerns of people and what people are doing constructively to really strengthen their communities, I think that would be essential. I agree with you that the corporate media is, you know, they know that Trump is not a strong proponent of the First Amendment, and they know that he's attacked even corporate media, right? And so if they think they're going to be able to win his favor by being nice to him, I think I think they're wrong, and I think they'll just be ruining their reputation. Mm-hmm. But we really count on the alternative media and folks who are independent of corporate funding, and we rely on those outlets to get the word out. And I think more and more that's where people are turning rather than your corporate media because they totally let us down during this election cycle. I'm getting to love the thought of having you around And I will never let you down We all understand that at a time like this, it is more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you are in a position to stand up when you know others can't. And if your budget's a little bit bloated, what might you be able to cut out to make room to support all of the independent media that you depend on? Maybe you're spending too much on your cable bill, your coffee habit, your cell phone, whatever. It's not exactly building a victory garden, but maybe there's something you can cut back on so you can redirect those funds to your favorite news sources who depend on supporters like you. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so I would be happy to set you up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. Just shoot me an email, j at bestofleft.com, and I'll send you an invoice to get you started. If you sign up to donate 6 bucks a month or more, you get access to the members-only podcast, which includes commercial-free versions of the show, as well as some bonus content that I make and tell some stories, mull over some big ideas. So if you get value out of this show and think it's worth supporting it, then I hope you will make the move to become a member today. So again, you can support this independent media show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. Americans have an ever-growing list of things to be freaked out about. So I asked Ashley Nicole Black to add one more thing. We cannot prevent terrorist attacks or cyber threats, 
without some capability to penetrate digital communications. Thanks, Obama. But is that how the surveillance state is being used? Government is already collecting data on millions of innocent Americans on a daily basis. I guess not, because now they have unprecedented authority to hack into Americans' computers and their devices. The government surveils communities they believe oppose them. And when Donald Trump becomes president, they might come after you. Also, everyone who didn't like his last tweet. Ugh, am I being too paranoid? If you don't mind, I want to be... I want to surveil. I want surveillance. Oh, shit. Here's the ACLU's technology expert, Chris Segoyan, to tell me everything's going to be okay. President Trump will inherit the most powerful surveillance machine ever built. On the bright side, pretty much everything Trump inherits goes bankrupt. So... President Obama thought that these tools would be used responsibly, but there's really a range of awful people out there trying to uh, violate your privacy. Why should I care about internet security if I'm not doing anything wrong? The government's view is to find the needle in the haystack. They have to collect the whole haystack. They know when you go to church, if you call a suicide hotline, if you visit an abortion clinic. This is like my nightmare, but my mother's dream. Is this a dream? How is the government surveilling us? Many of these tools were created for the military. That includes devices like license plate readers, facial recognition technology. And stingrays, devices that can fly over crowds and suck up data from everyone's cell phones. So now you can't plan your protest and the government knows who you're fucking. So what are they doing with all of this information? They will build a social graph showing who's calling who, who are friends, who are associates. So they're building something that looks like this. Yeah. It's just a map of black people. We know that law enforcement resources in our country are disproportionately uh, leveraged against people of color and the poor. There are even reports that DHS accidentally surveilled a funk parade, thinking that it was uh, a protest. Okay, but to be fair, they were threatening to tear the roof off the motherfucker. Gotta watch out for that stuff. But who's watching out for us? The American people. There's a scene at the end of Dark Knight. Familiar. Morgan Freeman destroys a surveillance machine that Batman built because it's too dangerous. We need the president to be Morgan Freeman. But he won't. Because Morgan Freeman has already been the president like 12 times. We need to learn to protect ourselves. But how? Oh, look. Here's a flyer for a crypto party that teaches people about internet security. It's run by a hacker who goes by the handle Matt Mitchell. This is Matt. I'm Matt, and I'm going to be talking to you about digital safety. Am I imagining this? Nah, I can never make up that shirt. We're going to start with how you can secure your phone. Why is the Geek Squad staring at me? A tool that you could use to make a secure encrypted phone call is called Signal. If my text messages aren't encrypted, they can be intercepted at any point and anyone can read them. That's correct. So that dick pic could be anywhere. There's a sea of dick pics everywhere. And that's just the tip. I'm learning so much. Like my passwords can't all be iHeartCoreyBooker. You need to have a unique password for every thing that asks for a password. I gotta tell black people to quit it with Boost Mobile. The Apple phone is encrypted by default, while most Android phones are not encrypted by default. I need to buy duct tape. To secure yourself, always cover your camera. Where do I get duct tape? There's malicious software out there allowing someone who's not yourself to access your camera. Wait a minute. 
This is the worst party I've ever been to. No one's even offered me a drink. Invite me to a party, scare the shit out of me, and there's no booze. Maybe I'll hook up with privacy lawyer Nate Wessler. Then my Fourth Amendment rights won't be the only thing getting violated. This kind of dragnet surveillance runs into really serious problems under the Fourth Amendment to our Constitution. The framers were worried about British troops searching every house in the neighborhood looking for one dissident. So instead, they're searching our digital neighborhood. Yeah, meanwhile, all of our privacy is sacrificed. I knew I was right. Is this even real? I, I, I'm right here. I'm, I'm real. I promise. He is real. And Matt agrees, the threat to all of us is real. Brown folks, LGBTQ, gender non-conforming folks, they've had the boot of oppression on their necks for a really long time. And now white folks are just beginning to feel like the pinky toe of it and panic is ensuing. I want to be like white people, this is the one thing you can appropriate, but then they probably won't do it. So maybe we should be like, encryption, it's just for us. And see how quickly they come running to take it. That's one idea. What's the one thing white people love more than Mr. Robot? Don't worry, Talib Kweli is here too. Now if you're black, watch your back, cause you're never alone. They take the data that you want and they don't have to condone. We go through episodes too, like Attack of the Clones, except even though Invader wasn't hacking the phones to get by, just to get by, just to get by, just to get by. Lock your phone with a passcode, or what you download it gets stolen. Basically, be the black and with Snowden. Just to get by, just to get by, just to get by, just to get by. The NYPD. Put the troll in patrol, then you online collected everything we post from Twitter to Vine. Right. Encrypted apps, let them have all your data that's private. Like every dick pic that you text to your side chick, your spy shit. Uh. They're trying to take us 50 years backwards. Fuck your password. You ready for revenge of the black nerds? Oh. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell your senators to expose Jeff Sessions' anti-civil rights and anti-privacy history before he's confirmed as attorneys general. Jeff Sessions has been around for a long time. In the 1980s, Reagan tapped Sessions for a judgeship, but the Republican Congress at the time rejected him due to his long history of racist comments and questions surrounding his unfounded prosecution of a black civil rights rights activist for voter fraud. Yeah, he was too racist for Reagan-era Republicans. Since then, Sessions has only revealed more about himself that proves he is in no way fit to fairly uphold the law or the constitution of this country. In fact, he has really gone out of his way to target or offend nearly everyone while advocating for authoritarianism at every turn. Here are just some of his views. He's opposed to the key provisions of the Voting Rights Act. He's against sentencing reform, which is a bipartisan issue. He's pro-police militarization and thinks America is experiencing an all-time crime high, despite all evidence to the contrary. He is pro-border wall and the National Immigration Forum said, quote, Sessions is opposed to immigration as we know it, full stop, unquote. He is anti-marijuana and only disavowed the KKK when he learned its members smoked. He is anti-LGBT rights and has actively tried to protect discrimination against LGBT people. He is anti-abortion, voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, and said that calling Trump's comments about grabbing women by their genitals sexual assault was, quote, a stretch. He believes Islam is a, quote, 
toxic ideology, unquote, and a, quote, threat, unquote, and supports Trump's proposed ban on immigration from Muslim countries. Oh, and he's also pro-torture. And then, as if all of that wasn't enough, there are his feelings about privacy. Even though many of his Republican colleagues supported it, Jeff Sessions fought against the bipartisan bill to end the bulk collection of phone records. According to the ACLU, he has repeatedly pushed for greater surveillance authorities than law enforcement and intelligence agencies have even asked for. And when it comes to end-to-end encryption, Sessions is perhaps one of the fiercest critics out there, strongly backing the FBI in its case against Apple to force them to create backdoor access to the iPhone. But despite all of this, on January 10th, Sessions will yet again sit in front of members of Congress at his confirmation hearing, this time as Trump's pick for attorneys general, the most powerful law enforcement office in land. You can make sure that every single bit of his dirty anti-civil rights, anti-privacy laundry is exposed during this hearing by calling your senators today and often to tell them how you feel about Sessions' record and to demand that the Senate Judiciary Committee leave no stone unturned when questioning Sessions at this hearing. You can read more about Sessions' record at aclu.org, and then go to senate.gov to find out how to reach your senator. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if stopping a racist man with a long, documented history of fighting against your rights from becoming attorneys general is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling your senators to expose Jeff Sessions' anti-civil rights and anti-privacy history via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change When Saul pees in his bed now, which happens less and less frequently In the middle of the night, I remind him This is why tomorrow night We've got to pee before you go to bed. And then in the morning when he comes in and he says, I didn't pee my bed last night. And I'm like, good job. That's because we did. We took a pee before you went to bed last night. The point being is that at the moment of realization that you've either peed your bed or you haven't peed your bed is a good time to remind you or one of what has to happen Next time you're faced with the dilemma for far too long. And I I don't know if many people in this audience are really of the, of, of that ilk because we certainly talked about it quite a bit. But when you look about, you look at the, the Obama administration's national security, if you want to call it that even policies, when it came to the drone program, when it came to whistleblowers, when it came to NSA spying. Uh, we had Charlie Savage on this program a couple of times who talked about the, the, the primary difference between Bush and Obama with a lot of this stuff is that under Obama, this stuff was institutionalized. It was put into a legal framework, or I should say a legal framework was crafted around it. 
And occasionally you'd hear someone say, well, how would you like it if Donald Trump had this power? Well, welcome to a completely peed bed, ladies and gentlemen. On the phone, it's a pleasure to welcome to the program Branko Marchetich. He is a, an assistant editor with the Jacobin Magazine, a freelance uh, journalist, and uh, has a piece in the Jacobin current issue, I believe it is, Passing the Baton. Barack Obama spent eight years expanding the national security state. He will soon hand its full power to Donald Trump. Uh, welcome to the program, Branko. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on. And um, good work on getting through my last name. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That is, um, that almost, uh, yes, it is. I think it's one of the rare times I nailed it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so Serbian last names are a nightmare. I, I uh, understand everything. All right. Well, let's, I mean, I, I have trouble with just about every, um, every ethnic, uh, ethnicity ranging, you know, I can mispronounce <laughs> Wilson in the right context. Um, uh, let's let's go through um, uh, some of these things that um, that uh, that that uh, uh, Trump. I mean, excuse me, Obama will be handing over to Trump. I mean, passing the baton. There is literally a passing the baton ceremony. Uh, I know that has taken place in the past, sometime the day or two after the um, the inauguration. It's usually with national security uh, advisors. In this instance, uh, Michael Flynn will be taking over. Um, but, but let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, some. Let's start with I don't know. Uh, the, I guess the, the 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 drone program, if you want. What exactly is Donald Trump going to have waiting for him when he gets into the White House? I mean, essentially, he'll have the the legal authority uh, to to unilaterally uh, order the assassination of. of Pretty much anyone that he wants, that he declares is, is a, a terrorist or a threat to national security. Um, I mean, there are rules around how uh, the president can order, um, you know, drone assassinations. Um, however, those rules aren't really, you know, they can be they can be rewritten by a Donald Trump. Um, and you know, if you look at kind of the the history of the Obama administration's kind of legal wrangling around how they. Um, you know, around how they defined what exactly the, the powers that they have to, to order drone strikes and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of the times it's, it's not so much kind of driven by limits to the law. It, it, it seems more driven by how can we kind of reinterpret the existing law? How, how can we kind of, uh, sort of look at what, what's, what authority we have now and sort of, ex, you know, uh, interpret it as expansively as possible. Um, so there's no reason that, Donald Trump, once he finally gets inaugurated, uh, couldn't also, you know, easily uh, reinterpret uh, these things uh, into a much more kind of much more expansive way than, than Obama has, which which is already pretty expan expansive because uh, you know you you read my article, uh, one of the kind of biggest I would say scandals uh, that doesn't really get talked about that much. Um, uh, is the fact that the Obama administration uh, killed, uh, well, targeted and killed a U.S. citizen uh, without due process? Uh, it was a, you know, a straight up, basically an assassination um, uh, of a suspected terrorist who ha also happened to be a U.S. citizen. Now, you would think theoretically that goes against ideas like 
due process, uh, you know, the idea that everyone gets a fair trial uh, before they are punished. Uh, certainly the idea of having a unilateral kind of um, uh, ability to, to sentence anyone to death is, is uh, I would say, troubling at the least. Um, you know, but that's just me. Well, no, I mean, I think, you know, the, uh, it's, well, it's not just you. I mean, I think, um, uh, there's a, uh, um, there's a, uh, you know, and we've talked about this program about the assassination of Anwar al-Waki and, uh, his son, uh, and there were two other Americans, uh, American citizens, my understanding too, that we, we assassinated. Um, but what really, I think, um, in terms of the expanse of nature, and, and we should we should make it clear here that uh, what was released in 2014 uh, officially and what had been reported on sometime earlier was the processes in which the target list was drawn up on. Uh, I think it was T- Terror Tuesdays. I'm not exactly sure what they call whose nickname that was. Uh, but the days when the, the president was basically handed the list, there was a, there was a, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I would call it a rigorous process of, of determining, I bet, but I, but let's stipulate that it was a rigorous process, but there was no new law that was passed, right? It was just the OLC, basically the office of legal, legal counsel writing briefs as to why it's legal and um, with very limiting factors, it seems to me, they created a process, but it was not necessarily – it's not clear to me that it's contingent upon that process. And and tell people what Eric Holder had said in 2013. I, I don't know if it was in the context of a, uh, a press conference or a specific question that was asked him, but I think this is pretty um, uh, serious because uh, – well, obviously it's serious, but it's um, – Sorry, it's actually uh, a letter he wrote to uh, Rand Paul, who was asking about this. Just remind us of where Holder was on this. And, you know, I don't know where Jeff Sessions is on, I mean, uh, on something like this. Uh, but um, t- tell us what Holder had to say back in 2013. Right. Well, Rand Paul uh, wrote a letter to, to Eric Holder basically wanting to clarify uh, what exactly the limits of this this power of drone strike was? You know, if, if the if the president can order the killing, the unilateral killing of a of a U.S. citizen overseas, can he also do it on U.S. soil? So we asked him a question. Holder basically said, you know, uh, this would never happen um, hypothetically. However, he can he can certainly foresee a situation uh, where. Uh, uh, the president, in some extreme circumstance, might have to order the uh, drone strike the, or the drone killing of a U.S. citizen uh, on U.S. soil, um, which means, I mean, that means you're basically bringing the war home. And even while uh, Holder, you know, made sure to say that this is this would be a rare thing or, or a, you know, a, a nearly unheard of thing, this would not be something that, that happens all the time, just the fact that according to him, there was a legal justification for this, uh, should be concerning for anyone who thinks that Trump is a, you know, a, a fascist dictator in waiting or, you know, is is ready to abuse his power at a moment's notice. I mean, let, let me read some of the language of it because um, uh, he said, uh, while it was entirely hypothetical and unlikely to occur, it is possible, I suppose, to imagine an extraordinary circumstance in which it would be necessary and appropriate 
for the president to authorize, I should say there's an ellipse there, authorize the military to use lethal force within the territory of the United States. Now, I, in the event that something like that, if there was a decision that the, uh, the government took to do something like that or wanted to, it is beyond a shadow of a doubt, right, that this is going to be cited. Like here is one of those citations is going to be Eric Holder, attorney general to, uh, I mean, that's just, it goes without saying. Um, and this is, you know, again, uh, we, you know, some of this, I guess is just sort of a warning, but it's also sort of just saying like next time we're in the situation, folks, uh, you may want to, uh, make a little bit more of an issue of it uh, at the time, because you never know where this is going to end up. We just heard clips today from The Real News Network speaking with Chris Hedges about Trump's ability to crush dissent, The David Pakman Show finding bipartisan agreement to defend the Constitution, a TED Talk by Christopher Segoyan on the civil rights issue represented by the phone in your pocket, The Humorless Queers talked about the future of police and surveillance, Counterspin spoke with Sue Udry about fighting for civil liberties under Trump. Full Frontal with Samantha Bee tried to make encryption cool. Our activism for today is to expose and oppose Jeff Sessions during his confirmation hearings. And finally, the Majority Report discussed just part of the national security state that Trump will inherit. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Heck yeah, Jay. I love what you do. This is Dale Rains from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Really, really freaking love your podcast about how to try to communicate with people in an attempt to do what I call bending people, because we're not going to change people. And uh, I just listened to your latest podcast. I, I, it really hit home with me um, when one of your callers said that conservatives are going to hate things just because progressives like it. Like, holy closed-minded cow. Wow, that was a great point, and I'm glad I heard it, and uh, I may be very guilty of that same thing. I go around, and uh, I'm still rocking uh, the Bernie Sanders regalia, and that alone lets people know who I am. Luckily, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, so I don't I haven't been punched in the face for it yet, but I think that just by the simple fact that I let people know that I exist, it's kind of kind of my way of dealing with it. Like, uh, I don't try to put it in anyone's face, tell anyone that they're wrong. I just want people to be aware that I'm a true progressive and I'm not trying to drag anyone along kicking or screaming. I'm just... And I'm not sitting in the corner either. I'm just publicly expressive about how I feel about things. Like, like hey, folks, I'm I'm going out to Philadelphia to protest the PNC. What do you think about that? And kind of leave it there. Let people make up their own minds because they do own their minds. I think that's about it. I hope I make it out of the show this time. Thank you. Thanks for everything you Hey, Jay, this is Clyde Franklin calling from Cary, 
North Carolina. And I just wanted to give my input on tying together, I think, two different voicemails that have been left to you along with one of the subjects that you've covered. One of the voicemails was about the sci-fi subculture and, and the idea of the sort of revenge of the nerds that we're seeing played out as a theme in our politics these days. And just to let you know that I was actually a conservative back in way back when in my high school days. And I was part of that sci-fi nerd community. The social theme of the time uh, that sort of ran through high school along with the normal social struggles that go on there and being picked on as, as nerds and so forth was the idea that can be summarized in, in the phrase, one day these bullies that are picking on us now will someday be pumping our gas. That line sort of encapsulates the idea that someday we're going to win. We're going to be better than the people that are picking on us. As such, I saw that my conservatism at the time was developed as a result of the fact that I thought I, I could answer the questions of life through simple logic, through thinking about things in terms of what is the best way to run a society. And I thought I could do that just out of my own head, which I think is probably a common theme. And of course, what began to change me was relationships and talking. I began to change in, in college as uh, I met a woman who would later be my first wife in the mid-80s. And she was not as conservative and well, more of a, a feminist, really. And her talking to me and the fact of our relationship, she began to talk to me about male privilege in a very compelling way, not always successfully. She kept at it. She was patient. And because of her, I began to realize some of the things I'd been missing in terms of understanding my privilege as a man. The other voicemail I'm tying this together with is the, the guy who called in expressing his frustration, and I completely understand that frustration, about the fact that people tend to take a position, particularly conservatives these days, against whatever you're for, and that it's so hard to talk people out of position. And I'm just here as a counterexample. I'm not saying I'm common. <laughs> a common example, I think it, for the most part, probably would be a pretty rare thing to have happen. But it can happen, and it happens to relationships. I started uh, understanding more perspective about people being gay or being otherwise sexually different or gender differences. And it all came about because of having relationships with people who were different from me and, you know, tied in, of course, with my willingness to, to listen because I think one of the things that drives me is a desire to have clarity. The opposite side... Uh, it can certainly drive people away and drive people further into their narrow-mindedness. And I think that one thing that's, that this latest election cycle has shown, that the force of humiliation, how, how strong and motivator feeling humiliated can be. This ties back to the nerds as well as the perception, I think, among certain groups of older white men Part of the motivator of all the anger is probably a feeling that they feel undervalued or uh, in some ways humiliated by the fact that they perceive that they're losing their place and 
that perceived lack of dignity or humiliation just leads to anger and just wanting leading them to to feel like they need to be back on top and quote unquote take their country back and so forth. Same thing has happened, I think, with some of these groups of nerds, as was reported in that article about the tie between the sci-fi subculture and uh, things like Gamergate and the misogyny and so forth. The feeling of being humiliated because they couldn't gain the uh, the attraction from, from the women that they were after, or they even got picked on about it or made to feel that they could never attract someone like that. I think the main thing I wanted to get across was the fact that uh, relationship and honest dialogue can lead in one direction, one very positive direction potentially, not always of course, but humiliating others, insulting others, even if that's not maybe what you intend, that's something that needs to be watched out for because that just drives people further away and leads to further separation in understanding. So. Anyway, I thought I'd offer my perspective on those two things. And uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. I think your explanations are awesome. I love the fact that you give different perspectives on things and explain them in a way that I tend to fail to. <laughs> but I uh, really appreciate it. And thank you very much, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or detailed explanation of something to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I, I believe that both of these calls we just heard are hearkening back to a message that I played before the holiday break. I believe that it was Eric from San Francisco who called in and he was expressing some frustration with the show because I had been talking about it and there had been a bit of an emphasis on talking across ideological lines, trying to convince conservatives of our position or trying to find new ways of talking about progressive issues so that they might resonate with conservatives. And what Eric basically said was, it is well understood political science fact, more or less, that conservatives very often hold the positions they do simply because they are opposed to our position. Uh, that That's what the first caller was referring to. They hate it because we like it, not because of any ideological aversion to the thing, just that if we like the thing, then they don't like the thing. And I believe I said this before the break, but it bears uh, repeating, that that is absolutely true when you're talking about politicians and professional propagandists, whether in the media or people like Frank Luntz, you know, all, all the people who, the wordsmiths who figure out the messaging for conservatives, that's definitely true. That's mostly because politics in this country, especially, is mostly a zero-sum game that if Democrats lose, then Republicans win and vice versa to some extent. And so politically speaking, they win, giant air quotes there, if they make Democrats lose. So if the Democrats propose something, Republicans have a political reason to oppose it because they can kind of sort of win in whatever way that means, mostly just getting whatever their funders are asking for. So that's absolutely true what Eric is talking about. But when it comes to actual humans, that is not true at all. As we just heard from Kwai, people 
change. I've heard from dozens of listeners over the years saying that they used to be conservative, but they went to college and, you know, got new friends and listened to this show and everything combined made them realize, oh, I thought I was a conservative. Turns out I'm a goddamn socialist, you know, and they flip all the way. And then there are just a lot of people in between who can be swayed a little bit one way or a little bit the other. And that's who I'm mostly talking about. So the way I see it, uh, this reminds me a lot of a conversation that was going on. Uh, it, it happened a lot on the Young Turks. If you're familiar with their show or some of the dynamics there, there, there was not across the board agreement among all of their hosts during the election. There was the Bernie, you know, they're pretty much all Bernie supporters, but some of them were the Bernie or bust supporters. And some of them were the, Hey, like good try Bernie, but let's do what we can to stop Trump from getting in sort of supporters. And so this would come up over and over again that, uh, Jimmy Dore, who has his own show, but is also on the Young Turks would say, you know, we need to not vote for Hillary because we have to punish these corporate Democrats so that they learn the lesson and understand that they can't get away with being these terrible corporate Democrats. And Jenk would say, no, you're missing it. That, that's not the point at all. There is no teaching corporate Democrats. The fact that they are corporate is the lesson they've already learned. You cannot teach them out of that. You have to change the system. And so similarly, you can't convince GOP politicians to be any more progressive because they're bought and sold in the exact same way as corporate Democrats are. There's a little bit different dynamic going on there, but it's basically the same system at play. So you have to change the system. So if you're arguing to try to convince GOP politicians or to convince or punish Democratic politicians, you're just barking up the wrong tree. So I totally get that. And that is not what I'm aiming for. Uh, I'm aiming for people like Kwai. I'm aiming for the people who are reachable. And it's not even just about convincing them of our side. It's also understanding that across the political divide, we basically speak different languages. What we call corporate welfare, conservatives regular average Joe type conservatives, they actually hate that too, but they call it crony capitalism. So they hate it for a slightly different reason than we do, but they still hate it. And same with corrupting money in politics. There is a gigantic swath of conservative people in the country who hate money in politics and the way it corrupts our politicians. So all of the organizations fighting against money in politics have huge cross-partisan support from conservatives and liberals all working together. And one of the people with the most progressive, longest track records maybe in the country is Ralph Nader. And one of his most recent books is called Unstoppable, The Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. So that's another thing that we have in common with the right is that people are beginning to understand I know on the left this is happening. I don't know as much on the right, but I, I think there are, there is movement there as well, that people are beginning to understand that it is less about left versus right and more about the powerful versus the powerless, the corporate versus the people. And so I haven't read it yet, but I just 
downloaded it for free. I got the ebook from my library, Word to the Wise. If you didn't know, you can get ebooks from your library for free. So I just downloaded Ralph Nader's book. I'm going to start reading it to try to get a better grasp of of hopefully, hopefully the breadth of this potential left-right alliance that doesn't have to do with sacrificing progressive visions or, or anything like that. It's about finding the places where we can work together, as Nader says, to dismantle the corporate state. Because here's what I see as the 10,000-foot view of life under the Trump administration. Everything in the federal government is completely fucked. So uh, a lot of effort and work is going to shift to the states you know, lots of people have been saying that. You've probably already heard it somewhere else before now. So a lot of progressive effort is going to go back to the state level. And secondly, conservatives, just regular average Joe conservatives, are going to very quickly become disillusioned with Trump if they haven't already, based on his appointments and what he's going to start doing, because it's all geared towards fucking over average people and propping up the corporate state. People don't like that. <laughs> they don't like being jerked around and fucked over. And so the way to win, as evidenced by exactly what Hillary Clinton didn't ever do, the way to win against Trump-style right-wing populism is not to just point out that it's bad and evil. You have to provide a better scenario. You have to provide another option that sounds feasible. So this is absolutely the time to keep those conversations going, keep that pressure on to try to convince people this is not the right way to go. This sounds good. This is this is Colbert's truthiness. It, it feels like the right thing to do was vote for Trump and upend the system, but it turns out it's going to be unbelievably disastrous. So we have to be ready with another plan in place, and we have to be talking to people one-on-one -on -one to start introducing them, conservative, anyone who might have voted for Trump, those people in the middle, those people who might have, you know, one day uh, long ago, back when they were a member of a union that has since collapsed, when they would have voted more progressively, we have to be there ready to say, no, we actually do have a better vision. The Democrats, and especially in the, the corporate Democrat wing of the party, they do not represent the entirety of what the Democrats have to offer. There are newer and much better ideas available on the left than was represented in this last election. And believe it or not, a lot of conservatives actually agree with those ideas more than they agree with the sort of middle-of-the-road corporate Democrat style. Because as I said, it's not about right versus left. It's not that when you go further and further left on this theoretical spectrum, the harder it is to convince conservatives of it. It doesn't work that way anymore. In our current paradigm, the further left you go, the more anti-corporate you go. And that's a completely different scale. The more anti-corporate you go, the easier it is to get convince regular, average people that the corporations are screwing them over and they're buying the politicians in the same way, making the system work against us. That's an argument we can all win. If you have comments on that or anything else, keep them coming in at our phone line, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content 
content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh,